more about the Brahma Viharas, the four divine abodes. Vihara means home, the home of Brahma. And these are these are four practices that have been taught recently in the Vipassana community and particularly on the long three-month course at Barrie, Massachusetts, the Insight Meditation Society. These four practices are being introduced more and more. The practices of metta, karuna, which means compassion, mudita, which means empathetic joy, the joy for other people's happiness, and upeka, equanimity. And each one being a significant quality of the heart, of the awakened heart. And through the practices, it's said they can be cultivated and strengthened. For me, the metta practice has always been a very significant part of my my practice. And it was introduced very early on, but just as a nothing nothing quite important in those days. It was more like you can you can say these phrases and um, just say them when you like and see what happens. Just may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be free of pain. And I connected very much with those phrases and I found myself wanting to say those phrases to myself. And it felt so good. It was felt like I felt very rested and very peaceful when I would say those phrases. And sometimes when I feel particularly angry with myself or or not able to accept some something that I saw in myself, I would just remember my deeper wish for myself and just be able to say those words and kind of put my hand over my heart, give my heart a little rub and just say, may you be happy, may you be happy. And just remembering, it was a way of, of, of reconnecting with what was really of most value for me, rather than getting angry and judging and criticizing myself, but being able to reconnect with that place where I really did care. And it became something that I practiced, or I did pretty intensively, for about two years, and uh, just but it was spontaneous. It wasn't any kind of a formal practice. Just something that I found myself doing when I would be going through the day after I hung up from a phone call or washing the dishes or feeling hurried or whatever it was, just having an argument with somebody. I would just be able to reconnect with that deeper wish I had for myself. And of course it was very valuable too when I felt that anger and irritation with others and also wanted to remember that they wanted to be happy too, that they were only going through their own difficulty and their own inability to come to peace in themselves. And I was, I was at the effect of that. And then to wish for their happiness. May you too be happy. May you be free of your, of your pain. And so it became really a good friend, a very good friend. 
And so a few years ago, I, two and a half years ago, I decided to sit the three-month course at the Insight Meditation Society again. I had done it a few times before. And I was very happy that they were now teaching the metta practice as an intensive practice, a concentration practice, where instead of doing the vipassana, from the minute I woke up in the morning to the minute I went to sleep at night, I just keep repeating those four classic phrases that we've been doing here. And just keeping those phrases going, just going in the mind, constantly, so there's, not, there's very little room for anything else to come in. But of course, just as in our meditation practice, lots more comes in. <laughs> but the point is, just as it is in our practice, working with the breathing, is to use that as the focus, as the object. So we use the phrases in this case as what we keep returning to and coming back to. So for six weeks, not for the whole three months, but for the first six weeks, I did the metta as a concentration practice, just repeating the phrases over and over and over again. And, and there's quite a few people who have done this now, and it's really quite remarkable. When I first imagined doing it, I, just, I didn't know how anybody, anybody, any person, any human being could keep phrases going <laughs> for, you know, for 16 hours a day. But it, something plugs in, and it goes. It just goes. And it was one of the most insightful things that I've done. The metta was simply to hold the intention for my happiness or for somebody else's happiness. What happened around that was all secondary. My task was just to hold the intention, just to keep the intention going, either towards myself, which I did for a fair amount of the time, or towards the other categories, to keep this intention going, wishing for my own happiness or for somebody else's happiness. And I found, doing it intensively, that the reason it had so much power, at least this is the way that I saw it, was that it acted as a mirror. It was like the purity of that metta became so, such a clear mirror for me to see myself and for who I took myself to be, how I experienced myself in a limited way, all that got reflected back to me. And I could see directly what is my capacity for loving. What is my capacity for loving? Because the wish to be happy and peaceful and, and safe and feel ease in myself would continually reflect my inability to be happy, to be peaceful, to feel at ease in myself when, when I wasn't able to, which was, seemed like quite a lot of the time. <laughs> so I had the wish but then I saw the reality. So it kept asking me the whole time, well, how do I hold this truth about myself? The truth about myself is that quite a lot of the time I wasn't feeling that happy or feeling that e- much ease 
or wasn't even able to enjoy doing the practice or I feel aversion towards the practice. Other things would happen depending on who I was doing the metta for, feeling irritation, feeling sadness, feeling anger, all the, just as if all the same things that happen when we sit here in the meditation hall. So that question kept getting reflected to me. How do I hold this truth about myself? Do I hold it with ease and gentleness and with an open heart? Or do I hold it with shame and judgment and disgust at what I see? So I was continually asked, how? How and, and, and how will I hold this truth about myself? For me, at times, I was really quite surprised at how difficult it was, how really difficult it was to be at ease, to be at ease with myself. And sometimes I would feel really strong moments of disgust and aversion towards what I saw. And I'd think, haven't I finished that yet? I thought I was done with that one. And here it is again, you know, this inability to feel happiness for this person or to send, send happiness, send wishes of happiness to that person and feeling so tight and so blocked. Haven't I finished with that yet? And sometimes I would just feel this real tightness and that coldness of heart, just a coldness of heart coming over, just an inability to move, an inability to change the way I was feeling, just a dullness, a coldness. And then I would react to what I saw in myself just as that being unacceptable. I had no space to accept that in myself at times. It was unacceptable. And then I would react to that that I wasn't able to accept. And sometimes it would just get so balled up, you know, and say, I'm still stuck in this. <laughs> I still can't break free of it. And yet, continually, through the teachings, through the instructions, I'm being asked to hold it all with metta. Hold it all with metta. Even that, everything that I saw, everything that came up in the mind, everything that came in the heart, hold it with metta. Be soft. Be kind. Acknowledge the truth. Don't hide. Don't hide away. Now it's just like, don't hide it away. Let it come. Let it show itself. Let it, re- let it reveal itself. And come into this environment of metta, of loving kindness. It can be tremendously painful to keep looking again and again and again. And just to see the places of holding again and again. And it takes (coughs) such tremendous perseverance to stay with it, to stay with it in the face of that again and again and again. No one said this was easy. In fact, a lot of us didn't know how difficult it was before we got started. (laughs) But once we start, we can't really turn around and go back feels too late. Mm -hmm. I saw that by repeating the phrases again and again and again, and by acting as this clear mirror to reflect myself back to myself, 
I saw, too, that the power of the metta is that it exposes this gap. It exposes the gap. On the one hand, what we see in ourselves, the, the real sense of self, this solid sense of how we take ourselves to be, I call it the sense of limitation, limited mind and body. And all that that holds, the self-consciousness, the fear, the vulnerability, the self-hatred, all that's revealed in that mirror, in that reflective mirror. And that's on the one hand. And on the other hand is what we know is possible, is our potential wish for ourselves. What we touch in ourselves that we know is there when we can let go, when we can soften. And so we're continually confronted with this gap of what we see, which is the reality in different moments, and our wish, our hope, what we know is the truth. And sometimes this gap can feel quite big. It can seem like there's no way they're ever going to (laughs) meet. Too much space, too much distance. And yet this is what we're confronted with. We'd rather not see this sense of limitation, this humanness, the humanity of ourselves. I mean, we really would rather not see it. (laughs) It's like, no, thank you. You know, then again and again and again. You know, they say ignorance is bliss. Well, it is. (laughs) We don't have to see the truth. You know, it can be blissful to say, oh, forget it, I'm just not even going to look at it, it doesn't matter, you know. One of the American teachers, Ramdas, said that they should put cautionary labels on retreats that say, meditation may be dangerous to your mental health. You know, because we, we, we see things we never, ever thought were there. We can painfully see our level of attachment to how I want to be, how I want to feel, what I want to experience. All of our expectations, our hopes, our dreams, it's just all there. And how we hold on and how we grasp after all of that. But when we face the truth, we see the gap our sense of limitation, and what we know is true. And is there a way to hold both? The parts of myself I see as limited and fragmented, and that wish for more. Is there a way to bring these together so that the gap doesn't feel so potentially large? Do we have to reject the limited part and merely strive towards a goal. It's so easy to deny aspects of ourselves, to ignore aspects that we see because we think they're bad or they're wrong. I think we've gotten, many of us have gotten very good. We just can just pretend they're not even there. Now that's what we mean by ignorance. It's just a not seeing. We don't even want to see. Or when we do see, when it does come up, we want to so easily reject it 
judge it. We can even be so harsh with ourselves when we see aspects. We can be critical. We can be hurtful. We really can be so hurtful to ourselves. It's frightening sometimes how we can treat what we see in ourselves. We think we don't deserve the kind of kindness, the kind of tenderness that's possible because I'm so bad, I'm so wrong. But what closes this gap? What can hold the gap so that it doesn't even seem like a gap anymore? The only thing that can close and even dissolve this gap is holding both our sense of limitation and our potential wish for ourselves in love. Holding them both in love, embracing them both with love. And this dissolves the gap. And all that we're left with is the loving embrace. Coming to this level of acceptance in both what we see as ourselves in this reality and what we see is possible for ourselves, to love it, to love them both. And this reinforces that wholesome pattern of loving rather than reinforcing the unwholesome pattern of fear. We're so used to reinforcing the pattern of fear, but we can turn it around and learn how to be loving. We can face directly this feeling of limitation by saying, yes, that's how I am. I do get angry. I am attached and possessive. I do overeat. But yes, that's how it is. That's the reality now. And I'm working on changing that. I'm doing things to help myself, to nurture myself, to care for myself. Such a beautiful thing when we can expose the truth in love, in tenderness. What is your deepest secret? that you fear somebody is going to find out. (laughs) I mean, each of us are harboring something. We go, oh God, I hope nobody ever sees this part of myself, you know, and yet they do. Can we really be honest with ourselves? Can we say, this is how it is? We can also use the practice of compassion. And as metta sees the good in others and wishes for their happiness, compassion or karuna is the love that sees the suffering of beings and wishes for their release of it. Metta focuses on the happiness. Compassion sees the suffering. It takes the metta and holds the suffering. Compassion is the the trembling of the heart in the face of pain. The Buddha says, the quivering or the tenderness of heart in the face of pain. 
So if, if compassion arises through seeing suffering, then why isn't the world more compassionate? This is a question my teacher Joseph Goldstein asked on the three-month course. I thought it was such an interesting question. He said, if suffering is a cause for compassion to arise, then why isn't the world more compassionate? Because we see suffering everywhere. And he said, the answer was, because we don't see it. We avoid it. (laughs) We become reactive and aggressive because we don't want to face the unpleasant. We don't want to feel the unpleasant. And in closing off to the unpleasant and the pain, we close the heart of compassion. We close off that wellspring, the potential for the compassionate expression. When we come close to the suffering, it can seem like the situation is a threat to my happiness, my good feeling, my comfort, my security. Like, no, I don't want that to interfere. I don't want that to destroy this good feeling I'm having right now. But we can do that even when we see difficulty arising in ourselves. We can, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. Now I was feeling really good. I was feeling really happy. And we can do all kinds of things, create all kinds of strategies to keep that painful situation away because it feels like a threat. And we can feel the reaction building, the anger, or sometimes just the sorrow, like, oh, why me? Why me? And just feel so sad that we weren't able to hold on to our happiness. And this anger and this sorrow can grow into despair and helplessness when it's not seen triggers and snowballs. When I was growing up, when I was entering my 20s, I didn't want anything to interfere with what I saw as my goal for happiness, pleasure, fun. That was all I had my eyes on. And anything, that's all I thought, you know, this is, this is the way to happiness. These are all the messages I was getting. You know, go on as many trips to tropical beaches as you can, restaurants, have lots of boyfriends, really fancy clothes, you know, n- nice car. You know, just to have all my, <laughs> my I, I'm not happy to admit this, it's a little bit embarrassing, but, <laughs> you know, I was just focused on what I thought was going to bring me happiness. And of course, this is the way that I was conditioned. You know, this is all the messages I got from my mother and father and from my schoolmates and my teachers. And and I didn't want to read any newspapers. I never listened to the news, any kind of news magazine. I was really quite closed off. And I knew that I didn't want to, but I thought I had to write. I don't have to have any of that come into my mind, into my heart, into my ears, into my eyes. And I was really clear that I didn't want any of that. Unfortunately, it was also the time the Vietnam War was going on, in my mid-twenties. And I can honestly say today that I got through those years without knowing anything about what was going on. 
in the war. And it's shocking. I mean, when I reflect on it now, being an American in America, of course I heard about the demonstrations and uh, people, uh, the, the men trying, running away to Canada to avoid the draft and what was happening to the college students, but so much fear of being drafted into the, into the war. But it had nothing to do with me. I was so good at blocking out anything that was painful. I didn't even know much about the war. And even now, when I hear stories and, and the, the Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, who's going around and spending time with the Vietnam vet- veterans and trying to bring some healing of the wounds, of the deep wounds that happened for the men who were in the service, and I'm hearing the stories, and I think, how, how could I have been that defended? How could I have been that closed off? And it really shows me the power of the mind to not allow in the suffering. The closed heart that does not want to face pain. Compassion is an unconditional allowing with an open heart. It's the heartfelt wish to alleviate the pain that we see. It's a spontaneous movement of the heart. It's a generous feeling. It's a giving feeling. And it frees the energy. There isn't the holding. There isn't the blocking or the the cutting off. In doing these practices, for each Brahma-Vihara, there's something that's called the near enemy. And that's what gets disguised as each one. And the near enemy of compassion is sorrow and grief. And at times we can feel like we're being compassionate because we have a feeling of that great sadness or the great grief or sorrow for what is happening. But this isn't compassion, because it still has aversion in it. There's still the wish for it not to be happening, the wish for it to change in some way. It's not unconditionally accepted. And even that little bit of aversion, even though it's closer to the compassionate heart, still that aversion, that wanting it to be different, can block the energy. It's still a way that the energy is held back from the spontaneous flow, the generous flow of giving and acting and caring. And so interesting for me as I've been doing these practices to reflect on that when I feel the grief or the sorrow arise, to really feel, is there a version? Is there some way that I'm not fully allowing the situation to be be what it is? And then to see if I can soften and open and allow for that pure feeling of compassion to flow. When we're able to let go of that aversion, even towards what we see in ourselves, towards that sense of limitation, we can soften even the sorrow and the grief we see in ourselves or the feeling sorry for ourselves. That's the compassionate response to ourselves. 
that's the compassion for our own pain. So in taking compassion as a practice, thinking of one person that you know who's in pain, and as you hold him or her in in your heart, you say, may you be free of suffering. May you be free of suffering. So simple, so gentle. Not adding anything, not taking anything away, but just strengthening, strengthening that connection to the pain. May you be free. Since there is suffering, may you be free of it. There's also the practice of mudita, which I'll just say a little bit about. The empathetic joy, feeling happy for other people's happiness and success. This is something that not many people really think about or reflect on. And yet there's so many problems from the effect of our negativity towards other people our judgments and comparisons and envy and jealousy. You know, it's such a common occurrence. You know, we see in our own minds and our own bodies. And we never, we don't so often think about the effect and our inability to really feel happy when somebody else has some event or something good that's happened for them. Say, oh, I'm so happy for you. Isn't it wonderful that that's happened for you? And to be able to put our own self-interest aside and have that purity of feeling flowing forward. Sympathetic joy is non-judgmental and it allows for the space for other people to live differently than than we live or we may choose to live and to feel happy for them. Do you know, I mean, can you imagine for one moment how this one shift of attitude of mind would change the whole world? Just making space for people to make the choices they make to live the way they live and feeling happy for them. And it's, it's radical. But we can, we can feel that in ourselves, like how that may not be so easy. You know, all kinds of things come up and interfere with the flowing of that, ha- that mudita that joy for other people's joys. Mudita realizes that happiness is not a limited resource. Somehow the mind gets it fixed that happiness is like a commodity, you know, like money on the market or something, that there's only so much and you have to get in there and get yours or you're going to lose it, you know. And if somebody else has got happiness, then that means I have less happiness, so I have to go and get it all for myself. (laughs) And so we sometimes don't want other people to be happy because it seems to take away from our own happiness. The more someone else has, the less there is for me. But happiness, as we know, I mean, as we can feel and sense into, happiness is an attitude of mind. It's boundless. It's infinite. It has nothing to do with any material or phenomenal experience. 
It's the state of mind. So when we do the mudita as a practice, we can begin by focusing on something simple that makes a person happy. Just something very simple, like my father-in-law, he really likes sports. He likes to play soccer and squash. And he's really happy when he can get an opportunity to play his sport, which isn't so often. He gets his clothes on and his shoes and he gets his racket and he's just so full of life and so happy to have that, that time to do that. And so for me to do this practice, all I have to do is just imagine him in his happiness playing the sport and let the happiness flow for him. So wonderful that he gets an opportunity to do that. And the phrase is, may your happiness and joy never leave you. May your happiness and joy never end. So beautiful. (laughs) May you always have this happiness. May you know nothing else but this happiness. (laughs) You know, really allowing for that connection at that place of joy. And this is really one of the most joyful practices because it's not focusing on pain. It's not focusing on suffering, but it's actually focusing on joy and cultivating and bringing that feeling of of my joy and other people's joy more into the practice, more into the life, more into connection. What gets disguised as murita, we think it's murita, but it isn't, is over-exuberance. We get really happy. (laughs) And what happens is we're actually feeding on that other people's happiness. Like, oh good, they're really happy so I can feel happy. You know, and you get, oh, you get over the moon, and you can kind of lose balance, lose connection. And that's not murita. We've lost the connection. Mm-hmm. And it's turned back to the self so that I can get some. <laughs> I can get some of what they had, you know, and get real giggly and overexcited. Mm-hmm. But again, it's coming back coming back down. And what underlies each of the other, each of the three Brahma-Viharas, the Metta, the Karuna, and the Murita, and keeps us down on the ground, keeps us connected, keeps us balanced, is the equanimity, is the upekka. Equanimity means connection. It keeps us connected. And it empowers us to face the unsatisfactory aspect of life again and again without us drowning in the aversion and the sorrow and the difficulty of it, the envy, the, the comparing, the judging, the, the, all the anger, everything that can arise when we're in these interactive plays and dynamics of life. Nupeka, or equanimity, keeps us connected. It gives us the courage to look again and again and again. It's the unconditional acceptance and allows us to feel at home in ourselves and in the world rather than fragmented and alienated because it allows us to be connected, 
to stay connected. It shows us that all situations arise from causes. Everything that happens is dependent on a cause. Everything is conditioned and arises out of some cause. Everything arises lawfully. And why things happen is much bigger than we can possibly see. We can't, we can't understand why things are happening the way they are happening. There's this great play of interconnected dynamic that is impossible to understand. So we need to have a very vast perspective on it all. We can't understand. This little mind is too small for the vastness of the, and the complexity of the problem. But it's not always possible to keep this perspective. We accept because it's happening, not because it's right. We accept and we allow things to happen because they're happening, not because it's right. If we want things to be right, then we're going to be in trouble because we don't live in a fair universe. But if they're happening, they're truth. They're truths that need to be faced. And when we can accept, we can have a more balanced perspective. Otherwise, we're just going to add more suffering and more pain. No matter how much we may wish things are otherwise, things are as they are. In this life, there is joy and sorrow. And can we accept this with an open heart? The near enemy, that which gets disguised as equanimity, is indifference. And when we're feeling indifferent towards something, this is an equanimity. I think it's such an interesting one to reflect on. Because sometimes when people get deeper and deeper into the spiritual world, spiritual practice, they can become so disconnected so detached that they're actually (laughs) not in connection with life. Mm -hmm. And there's something amiss here. This isn't what the practices are leading towards. This kind of disconnection can lead to passivity and denial and reactivity. And the heart is not open. We're not connected. We're not caring. We're not involved in life. Many people fear that meditation practice is going to lead to more cutting off and more detached, just cutting off from ourselves, cutting off from life, or that meditation practice is is just too self-interested. It's not interested enough in other and the world and connection. But this is not what meditation is pointing to. This is just disconnection. It's not equanimity. And true understanding of the teachings only lead to more connection, lead to more openness. In the practice of equanimity I talked last night, it's to simply use the phrase, things are as they are. 
things are as they are. So we do these practices, all these practices, Vipassana, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upekka, the walking meditation, all the different forms of, of practices and meditations that we do, we do them not as a way to reject ourselves and say that the way that we are now is, is wrong and we need to be like that, to hold this vision of what's possible. But we do them as a way to come back to ourselves, to live from the truth now. We don't have to wait, like, down the way, you know, a few years or another lifetime to connect with the truth. We do these practices to connect with the truth now. What is the living truth now? To come home to ourselves now to realign with ourselves now and to feel the joy and the great relief that comes when we do that and when we do that now right now it's available to us we don't have to wait for that to happen this is the gift This is the gift that each of us are given when we come into these beautiful teachings of Dharma. I'd like to end with a poem. From a poem by Derek Walcott, if that means anything. It's called Love After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread. Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you have ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your own life. Let's sit together for a few moments. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings see deeply into the truth of things. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.